Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, you got you got nice color skin. What color would you say that is? My color. Oh, Sage. They have the worst land possible. But they outsmarted everybody. The land had oil on it. Black gold. Money flows freely here now. I do love that money, sir. (laughs) (laughs) This wealth should come to us. Their time is over. This is going to be another tragedy. When this money starts coming... We should have known it came with something else. They're like buzzards circling our people. We're still warriors. I ought to kill these white men who killed my family. I need you here. You've got to take back control of your home. I was uh, sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. See what about them? See who's doing it. Expecting a miracle to make all this go away. You know they don't happen anymore. In this episode of Behind the Screen, we'll be delving into the art of sound with production sound mixer Marco Lano. His latest work is Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which is currently nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Mark previously won an Oscar for James Cameron's Titanic and earned three additional Academy Award nominations, including for his decades-long collaborator Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mark also frequently speaks with students in the U.S. and abroad about the art of sound, and he's a past president of the Cinema Audio Society. 
In this episode, Mark will talk about Killers the Flower Moon, as well as illuminate listeners about the art of production sound. A final note, I'll be moving to a new editorial role, and I'd like to thank The Hollywood Reporter, including all of whom I was lucky to work with on this podcast series. Thanks to our guests who brought so much deep insight and heart to these episodes, and to you, our listeners, for sharing this time with us. Here's our conversation with Mark Milano. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. So, Mark, to start, you've had this opportunity to work with, you know, Martin Scorsese and such a great team of filmmakers on this movie. I know you like to come in early and start talking about the film and the approach. What were some of those early conversations like? Well, this was an unusual circumstance because although I'd been touched about participating in the film in its first incarnation prior to the COVID era, timing and a variety of other issues intervened. And I didn't start the film. My dear friend, John Pritchett, began the film. I think he may have done a couple of weeks, if that, but had to leave the film for personal reasons, nothing negative in terms of the project. And so my normal intense obsession with prep became relatively short-circuited, and I had to dive in about two weeks in while the show was underway. However, fortune smiled upon me, and I think the project in a certain way, because many of the people on the project are people I'd worked with before. I'd worked with the first AD, Adam Sumner, and I'd worked with Rodrigo Prieto, our director of photography. Many of the crew members under his team also were, you know, longtime colleagues in multiple other projects. This was my fourth film with Leonardo, and my second was Robert De Niro. So there was ground in terms of that. And then the run up to my traveling to Oklahoma, there was multiple conversations with Thelma Schoonemaker, the Marty's, you know, uh, longtime partner and amazing, amazing, you know, iconic presence. We had serious in-depth conversations via Zoom uh, in the run up to my travel. And so this was all very helpful. And then Marty himself, when I arrived Leonardo and Marty were in a conversation and Leonardo saw me arriving at the set and waved me over. And I had this really lovely, warm introduction to Marty through Leonardo in that moment. And I overlapped John's last day on last days on the show. So I was able to really collaborate in terms of continuity, insight into the, you know, the journey that's had occurred so far. And it really set me up in a way in, in a much shorter time than might normally be the case to be able to be in spirit of the project in the sense of what we were all on, on a journey to accomplish together. When I talked with cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto, he discussed his approach to conveying character information in the look. How did that apply to the sound? It did. I mean, my roadmap really is, you know, what is the idea? What's the intent? Um, not only what's on the page, but the director's intent and how he transmits that to the, the cast in, in terms of their uh, interpretation. So I try to function in that idea, that realm. Um, it's really an orchestral concept. You know, in, in essence, I look at what we do as a series of passionate, committed musicians who are lifelong committed to their particular instrument, but come together in an orchestra or band common mission to tell the story. So in Rodrigo's uh, description of that, it's very much parallel to my own. You know, what do I do that best communicates character, reveals character to the audience through the tonality of the performers, both in front of and behind the camera, actually. But the idea of how do we get the emotional information that partners with the visual information. And so sound is that way. It's invisible in terms of what it looks like, but it's essential in terms of communicating character as from my point of view and this show this film was very much a a, almost a prime example of that you know the three primary 
secondary characters. Leonardo's character is filled with, you know, conflict and ambivalence over the love story of in his marriage and his fundamental, you know, amoral betrayal, progressive betrayal over fear of his uncle, the character of his uncle and his own greed. And you could hear that. I mean, Leonardo disappears into this character. It's one of the most complex acting experiences I've seen with Leo. And, you know, we've worked together since he was he turned 21. I was younger than two. I won't say how much. And so that was very fundamental in terms of the voice he chose to be in complementary to his look, his prosthetics, and uh, his makeup, and his demeanor. Lily Gladstone playing Molly had also very much identifiable metaphors in her tonality that really spoke to the, the dignity and calm, super intelligent nature of the Osage community at large as they were under siege of this, you know, genocidal tragedy. And so she represents that counterpoint to the chaos, really, that's in Leo's character. And then Bob, Bob De Niro's character is emblematic of what he positioned as Hale in terms of his liaison status with the Osage to the white community and vice versa required a kind of trust that was very special. And Bob's character, and this is true of Hale, became very successfully fluent in the Osage language. And the language is sort of this sort of, you know, signpost to these characters. And De Niro's character, this is what's most, you know, frightening really, is that he used his fluency in the language as a, a tool for deception, as a way to automatically make trust. You know, when someone engages in a relationship with a culture that it's not their native culture, their primary culture, but becomes a, wants to be trusted and welcomed into that second culture. Language is the first doorway. And so um, you have this triangle and it all ties down to character tonality through their voices, their, their inflection, and their interactive tonality with each other. Could you elaborate a little bit on how that affected your approach when you were different scenes? Um, well, as I say, first thing I need to know is what's the idea? What are we doing here? You know, in the specificity of an individual shot. I mean, every shot's handmade when you make a film. It's a piece of the mosaic that ultimately has to be experienced by the audience as a continuity, as a singularity. So there's this similarity to uh, lenses and, and, and cinematography, this idea of the character art. For me, I'm always moving back and forth in the simplest terms between first person and third person. Are we inside the character's mind? Is it, is it sort of inner monologue and we're witness to that or, or participant or even a sensibility of being a character in the scene? Or are we at the other extreme, observers, you know, flies on the wall, third person and sort of witnessing this from, from behind the screen, but being with reportage, if you will. And so I'm always moving back and forth on that line, depending on where the information flow to the audience has to be. So it's more an aesthetic and a subjective thing than a technical thing. And it's very tied like to the improvisation that in intrinsically happens on the set, because we all come with a plan and an idea of what we're going to undertake on a given day. But the truth isn't revealed until we actually block the scene when we have a framing and the timing and the beats and the entrances and exits and head turns and responses and reactions. Reactions are very important for a scene to, to come alive. And so that's my sort of every moment, every 
everyday roadmap. I think it's hard, you know, and how do I do that? Well, the hammers and nails or nuts and bolts are, are microphones and microphone placement, timing and blending of all of those things in terms of where, when, and exactly how I use that. And with my team, uh, Doug Schamberger was our boom operator on this and Petrushka Mirzois was our primary utility sound technician. So we had Nick Ronzio and Brandon Lewis helping us and uh, Gary Raymond did music playback. So it's along those lines. It's like lenses. Microphones have the ability to communicate perspective of space, but also emotion of character. And it's sort of a thing that's more easily demonstrated by watching the movie or watching a film and sort of, are you invested? Do you come to this story and do you believe as an audience member? And I'm the first audience of the sound. So I try to very much always pay attention to how the information, the performance, the transitions, the arc that's taking place will be experienced by the audience. What were some of the unique challenges to working on these locations? We were at the height of COVID, first and foremost, in a very, very unusually hot season. We often hit 106, 108, 110 temperatures in the shade. The COVID aspect created, I mean, I think we had over 100 personnel just focused exclusively on the COVID protocols to making sure that the maximum amount of safety would be possible, which if we have many days with many, you know, large extras count. So these sort of are base level challenges. At the end of the day, we almost collectively didn't really let that impact our approach. We were in a state of, I think, of joy and privilege to be in the telling of this story. It's an unusual film. There's a great amount of purity in in Marty's space that he created for the process, for not just the performers, but for everybody. We had many, many, I hear tell maybe 40% of our colleagues on the project were both behind and in front of the camera. Descendants have had familial connection to the actual families and relatives who were affected by these tragedies 100 years ago years ago. So the challenges of the day by day seemed to fall away when we were in rooms and spaces and streets and towns where these events took place. The research level that happened both for the actors themselves, but the wardrobe and the makeup and all that, they had amazing good fortune and there being home movies from that time because uh, the Osage Nation community was so wealthy from the oil strike that they could afford to have home movies and make home movies at a time where, you know, that was ridiculously expensive and people were making three to five dollars a week as salaries in that era. So uh, if you can project that. So that created a Almost a, it's funny, movies as research became a prominent tool in connecting the audience and the story to the actual events. So I really just saw opportunities to rise to the occasion. A solution based, you know, attitude is the most important thing when you're confronted with things that seem difficult or impossible. What were some of the unique sounds or how would you describe the soundscape that you found when you were recording that world? Well, as I mentioned, the first and foremost piece for me was language. You know, the tonality of the Osage language is sort of, if I describe it as a musicality, it's a very even and almost wise kind of sounding rhythm and pacing. And if you notice the score, Robbie Robertson's, we'll miss him, fantastic and bolero-like score, 
is very percussive and consistent. It reflects, I think, also the nature of the vocal patterns of the language of the Osage. So that starts it. Then we're in these actual, you know, prairie, the wind, the vehicles, you know, we brought many, I think there were over 50 period vehicles. They didn't make them up. They found and brought them to the set for background crosses, for driving scenes. We had everything that could be done possibly to create the sense that when you walked on the set, it's like you went walked through a time machine. We were in the, you know, the streets, the the signage, the physicality of the spaces, the Mason's Hall where where the paddling scene takes place, you know, where Hale paddles uh, Ernest for his misdeeds per se to the in his inconsistency in supporting the conspiracy. So those kinds of reverberations and resonances were authentic. And when you experience that in in person, how can I say when audiences see a film, they're watching a movie. When we do it on the set, it's theater, it's live theater, because it's happening right in front of us. And we're interactive with it and responding and contributing to it. And when it's in the real physical spaces, there's something that happens magically. It's not something I think you would measure on some you know meter, but it's something you cannot miss feeling because you're in the room where this took place. We were in the doctor's offices where, you know, the the conspiracy that's described in the film is emerging. So I guess that's the answer. I don't don't really see challenges or obstacles in the same way. I don't see them as as negatives because every shot, every day on a movie set, elements compete. What's the priority here? What do we need to have the audience experience in this moment to carry the story forward? What has to be revealed? What has to be held back? What has to be foreshadowed? And how do we use our tools, each of us in our different disciplines, to do that? And sometimes those bang up against each other. Um, And our job is to find how to measure the balance of those priorities. Let's talk about the sound team that included re-recording mixers Tom Fleischman and Eugene Geraghty, Foley mixer George A. Lara, supervising sound editors Philip Stockton and Eugene Geraghty. A very prime example of the trust that Marty places in his repertoire company, if you will. So I'm in conversation with Tom primarily and then the others later about where we can really manifest the ideas that we're seeing emerge just from the pages, the idea of the scene, and keep an ongoing back and forth, very often through Thelma herself or Thelma's team in the uh, picture editing room throughout the production. So it doesn't happen in isolation. This is fundamental collaboration. And I couldn't be with a better group of artists to follow through on the foundational capture of performance that I provide through my interpretation of the idea of Marty's intent. And they carry that forward. I've heard comment on the length of the movie, but it's an irrelevance. It's like a crescendo. Again, I'll say the word bolero in that it's this ever-increasing intensity to tell this story. Many people I've spoken to after having seen the film don't even sense the duration of the film, because it's what's organically satisfying and necessary to tell the story of the film in its, in its organic way. Were there special challenges in creating the sound for um, the scenes where, you know, for example, they were adding the oil wells or the violence? Violence in particular. If you've seen the film, you notice it's one of the most restrained and therefore powerful uses of violence, both in the witnessing of people who have already been murdered, and then the murders themselves. They're sort of almost banal. In a genocidal situation, you're really dealing with the notion that the victims are less than human in the view of the perpetrators. It affords a rationale, a justification for these crimes. And 
I think Marty's decision to play those um, almost reflexive on the part of the criminals is, for me, more horrifying than, you know, blood and gore and guts could ever be, because it has the ring of authenticity, because these kinds of murders were incredibly amoral, you know, it was marry to acquire wealth, murder your wife, your in-laws, your children, even just horrific. And yet that's what took place. How familiar were you personally with the material when you started the project? Well, I'd read David Grant's book, of course, coming to it, not back in, in its first release. But, you know, once I was brought into the project, I was into a deep dive of research. So and, and also, you know, the larger issue of indigenous peoples in the U.S. in that era and even even ongoing to today. It's odd. I had a experience in my 20s before I migrated to Los Angeles where I was a house parent to uh, Indian teenage boys in Tucson, Arizona for a period of time under the auspices of the federal government. I uh, had a program and it was the first experience in direct communication and contact with these kids. They were amazingly talented and capable, but they were being put in to this program for misdeeds per se, you know, things that maybe uh, white community teenagers would not have had any kind of substantive consequence other than, you know, caution and slap on the hand. Some of these boys who, you know, I remember this one kid, he was 16 and he had grown up in the desert with his grandfather and could catch rabbits in his bare hands and was sweet and bright and intelligent and a loving kid. And here he was in this program, you know, this ultimately in retrospect, I left the program at the time because it began to appear to me that this was about assimilation without regard to the preservation of their rich cultural history. But it reflected on that experience for me to be here doing this with this community of the Osage as it presently exists. And these amazing people who allowed us into their lives and their hearts. You know, Hollywood could have been a bunch of carpetbaggers coming in, take advantage of whatever, and, and then get the heck out of Dodge. That didn't happen here. Marty and his team really invested huge amounts of research and care to communicate to the Osage leadership and their community, their desire to really get to the heart of this, the meaning of this, you know, and the choice to use the love story versus the FBI is a reflection of that. The, the book has more focus on the FBI and its uh, early days through this case, but the relationship as a metaphor in the marriage of Ernest and Molly really gets us to the heart of the, the racist moment at that time. So they still to this day are expressing their appreciation of respect and mutuality in the telling of the story. I don't know if that's everybody's opinion, but there's been enough of uh, my direct experience of in collaboration with Osage members, you know, during the work and after the fact in our premiere period and our Q&A period together with some of those individuals, a real sense of they got it right this time. Would you tell us about a memorable scene? The scene where the leadership is in the traditional hut structure uh, discussing how do they deal with this lack of any kind of, of support from the community in which they exist and their decisions to go outside the community and create a plea to the federal government. Can somebody get down here and start investigating these murders? You know, I mean, somebody please. And they do it with such dignity and such clarity in their minds. These Astahe are murdering us. In the case of Anna Brown... Her family here on the west side have raised funds with the amount of about $2,000 to $5,000 for the arrest and conviction of the murderer. 
Yeah. Oh, wait. Molly Burkhart has hired a private investigator. Uh-huh. When this money started coming, we should have known it came with something else because it's white man's money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not what we were taught coming down Missouri, mm-hmm. Arkansas, and Kansas. What has come to our reservation that doesn't belong here, and it's them. Mm-hmm. They're like buzzards circling our people. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to pick us body clean, yeah. leave nothing. The warrior spirit is funneled through a practical and rational decision about how to go about that. Um, when we were doing that scene, there was a moment where we're transitioning from one camera setup to another. So it wasn't while we were filming in the immediate. He's in the movie now. One of the leaders stood up and started making a spontaneous expression to the assembled, who were primarily members of his community and the film crew, about how significant this was and what we were doing and how much it meant and how powerful this medium is for that story to be expressed to the larger social community of the nation. So he started talking and I just had this feeling because I come out of documentary and I communicated my team on the set. I said, get that mic nearby, please. And I hit the switch and started rolling to capture this moment because I thought it might be of import to Marty and Thelma and others. And Marty came out of the structure and I said, Marty, if it's of value to, we have that as reference or whatever. And his eyes kind of lit up and he went back in and decided on the moment right there to include that in the scene. It was a kind of improv, but not intended as one. And now that's in the movie. When you hear that speech, that was a result of that event happening. To me, that sends chills up my back because it was so real. You know what I'm saying? We are in the spirit of this community who has had this tragedy as a fundamental story of their present identity, finally getting to a place where it can be in the world as it should be. And there's a kind of justice in that. So for me, that was a very significant moment personally, and also in terms of just the life experience of living on movie sets your whole life. This kind of thing doesn't always happen. It's rare. It also says quite a bit about the way you and Marty work together. Yes. Now, this is our first film, but we also come out of the same time and place of New York in the 1970s. I was a young film student, a freshman in 72, when Marty was emerging with Mean Streets and I will tell you that for us as film students and Marty being six or eight years ahead of us age-wise, to have one of our own out there really crossing the divide and planting a flag and saying, you know, this can happen. doesn't have to be, you know, the traditional Hollywood-centric only access point meant a lot. And so that time, the music, the era is of great consequence to me. And so, and obviously to Marty and all of the many things he's achieved and directed and produced. He and I spoke on this very much so because I went to School of Visual Arts in New York City and my best friend and co-filmmaker in that era coming out of high school, Bruce Sackow, who's no longer with us, became a screenwriter ultimately. We flipped a coin. One of us was going to go to NYU and one of us was going to go to SVA because our conspiracy was to bring people and equipment as young freshman film students because those are things that are harder to get when you're just getting into, you know, you're in the first years of your college days. And we both won actually. But Bruce went to NYU and that was in the Hague-Manoogie and Marty adjunct team era. So there's personal history here that is very parallel to me. And it was delightful to be able to have that conversation, that kind of conversation with Marty in these days in that context. So, you know, a bunch of New York Italians, what can I tell you? (laughs) De Niro, DiCaprio, Scorsese, you know, it was just great. It was very special. So we 
connected very quickly. There's a lot of intent to protect Marty. You know, he's of an age and there's a kind of frailty maybe implied, although I would say he had more energy and vitality than anyone else moving around that set. It was phenomenal and very inspirational for how people can rethink their ideas about what your senior years can look like as a creator, as a contributor. But it was very early on, day one or two, and I can't go through intermediaries to do what I do. It's like the director of photography. I need to be in the circle of trust of the director. And I and always are uh, optimistic that the director wants the same thing because it's shorthand. It saves a lot of extraneous conversation and assumptions when the parties engage directly communicate. And he allowed that right away, you know, day one or day two, I went to him and I said, you know, Marty, I can call you Marty, right? He said, yeah, sure. You know, and we were discussing a scene, the wedding scene, I think it was when De Niro was at the wedding and it's a giant crane shot. There's music and there's talking and all the rest and how we would approach that. And we were just two filmmakers in a nuts and bolts conversation about approach. You know, there was none of this hierarchical iconography of the maestro and all. it's all there. It's fundamental. It's foundational and delightful. But now we're in the business of making the movie. And we both knew that it really set the table for the rest of the shoot in our communication. You know, there was a lot of shorthand and non nonverbal. Sometimes it was a look or he would come and ask me, you know, what do you think? Or I would go, but only when necessary. We both have been in this passion for so long that like, like musicians, you need to get to an efficient state of fluency so that you don't waste any of the energy, any of the resource, the time and the resource of the facility to be here to do this. It's about the doing, not about anything else. And so that was a great gift, I will call it, a gift to me from Marty to accept me and bring me into that kind of communication right off the bat. You know, saved a lot of bullshit. I know you've also been doing quite a bit of lecturing on uh, sound, both in the U.S. and abroad. And am I correct? Your next movie will be uh, Quentin's next project? I'm looking forward to it very much. Quentin is consistent in his assertion this will be his last film. And although I, my heart has skepticism in it, I think I know from conversations with him, I mean, we, we've been working together 28 years. So there's a lot of journey in history and, and growing up together in certain ways that it's not about ending one thing. It's about getting out of his comforts, being the artist that he is and experiencing other avenues of creativity that he's anxious to participate in, you know, writing primarily. I mean, he's already had two books published recently, and I think we're going to see another golden era in Quentin's output as an artist and a communicator. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm excited this film will be, you want to collect the whole set, <laughs> you know, as a, as a filmmaker. All of us have our special disciplines, but at top of it, we're filmmakers and storytellers. And Quentin is the ultimate version of that in many ways in terms of our actual experience during the process. And Mark, would you like to introduce your team? I don't operate in a vacuum. So I like to make sure that my colleagues, my partners in the work, I don't approach it hierarchically. Technically, I'm head of a department, but I'm more a participant in a jazz band, if you will, of sound filmmakers, sound making filmmakers, sound makers, something like that. So if we're covering crafts, and I consider craft as foundational to creating art and not technically diminished from art, which is sometimes how people think of it, I like to make sure that the that my colleagues who have worked so hard and contributed so much and made anything that I've done remotely possible because of their artistry get noted and included. Doug Schamberger was our key boom operator, who also was the boom operator on Oppenheimer this year. So that gives you an idea of the scope of Doug's talent. Petrushka 
Mishka Mirzois, my business partner, creative partner for over 40 years. And also we are colleagues in the mentoring and teaching side of our careers. Nick Ronzio and Brandon Lewis were also part of the show. We're there with us to create the utility sound technician job. One of the key creative responsibilities are, you know, invisible to most. Gary Raymond was our music playback operator, and there were some complex music scenes in this. And so that's sort of our primary team. It's a powerful film. Congratulations. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about it. Well, thank you for being interested and wanting to share the different pieces of the journey with an interested audience. I think it's an important component of movies like this, making connection. So you also provide a very important link for us as filmmakers. And I'm very grateful for that, Carol. Thanks, Mark. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.